Mike, I have to admit that was the first time I've ever sung that as a congregational song. Normally I hear that with somebody with a very operatic voice uh, holding it a very long time, so that was, that was neat. So we're going to uh, begin our 16-sermon series on Exodus. I'm joking, joking, it's still 14, I promise. But uh, anyway, uh, we're in Exodus today, and I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 40 with me. Exodus chapter number 40, as we begin our series on the book of Exodus. Before we begin, there's a couple questions that I think that we need to answer. And uh, the first one is, why, why Exodus? Of all the books of the Bible, why Exodus? Well, if you think about it, for the Jews, it's the story of, of redemption. It, it literally defines their very existence, doesn't it? Uh, for the Christians, though, it's the gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's God's first great act of, of redemption. And so we return to Exodus again and again, sensing that some, somehow that it holds something significant for the whole human race, and, and it really does. Uh, the Exodus shows that there's a, there's a God who saves, who delivers his people from bondage, doesn't it? And think about all the, uh, the spirituals from the 19th century based upon the book, just giving images, uh, throwing out images to the book of Exodus. The, the Exodus was the great miracle of the Old Testament. So many passages in the Psalms and the prophets uh, look back to Exodus as a model of salvation. All, so many of the Psalms. The people of Israel always praise God as the one who brought them out of Egypt. You should note that. You should read through the Psalms sometime. Just make a note how many times that happens in the Psalms. The New Testament writers, they uh, worship the same God, and they often, listen, this is very important, they used Exodus to explain salvation in Christ. That's, that was the explanation, and so certainly a complete understanding of the gospel requires a knowledge of the book of Exodus and the Exodus itself. And in reality, and I think this is most important, if you, if you don't understand anything else why, it's this, that in some ways the whole Bible is an extended interpretation of the book of Exodus. Therefore, if that's true, then the way to understand Exodus is to study the book itself in the context of the entire Bible. It's, it's that important of a book. Think about the uh, content of Exodus and you'll see a picture of life here on earth, right? You have, uh, the book of Exodus starts out with the Israelites in slavery. And then a Messiah, a deliverer came and brought them out of slavery. And they, they did it, if you remember, through the redemption of the Passover lamb, right? The blood of the Passover lamb. After their redemption, then God took them into the wilderness and showed them how to live a life that pleased him. But they spent their lives in the wilderness. And how does Exodus end? I want you to see this. Uh, Exodus 40 and verse number 34. How does it end? It ends with the glory of God. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord 
filled the tabernacle. And that was the whole purpose of the Exodus. Over and over again, God, uh, you'll see that God, through Moses, said to Pharaoh, let my people go so I can take them out into the wilderness and they can worship me or they can serve me, a euphemism for worship him. And so we too, we too started in slavery. Slavery to sin, didn't we? Every single one of us, the Bible says, were slaves to sin. But we were redeemed by the blood of the perfect Passover lamb. And we currently spend our lives in the wilderness. This is our wilderness, and we are learning to obey God and learning those things that please God. And we see through a glass darkly, but one day, one day, we will see Christ in all his perfect glory, and we will worship him for all of eternity. Amen? So the Exodus is really a story of our lives as well. It's that critically important. The second question is this, why the title Save for God's Glory? Well, I already gave that to you. When you look at the Israelites, they only had one thing going for them. You realize that, right? They had one thing going for them, and that was God himself. So when you read Exodus, you see that Israel's God had one overriding purpose, and that was to glorify himself. And one of the most glorious things that God ever did was to save his people out of Egypt. And so the exodus itself was for God's glory. The psalmist wrote, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them, why? He saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Isn't that the book of Revelation? Isn't that the end? That everybody, myriads and myriads of people gathered around the throne, praising God for his power and for redemption through his Son. God makes his glorious purpose known throughout the book of Exodus. Whenever, I already said this, but whenever Moses uh, told Pharaoh to let God's people go, the reason he gave was so that they could glorify God. Thus says, um, I'm sorry, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And serve me is a euphemism, by the way, for worship. So from the beginning to the end, Exodus was for the glory of God. The whole glorious adventure shows that the God of Israel is the God who saves. And anyone who wants to be saved may call on his name and on the name of his divine Son, the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're going to study Exodus, and that's why we entitled this series, Save for God's Glory. Now, flip back to chapter number one, and we'll begin. I mentioned this in my Friday email. I have no idea how many people read my emails. By the way, we can tell whether or not you read them. I don't know if you knew that or not. The, the way the software is set up, we know how many people actually read our emails. I don't check. But in my Friday email, I encourage you to read Exodus 1 and 2 in preparation for today. Next week, read Exodus 3 and 4. The reason for that is I'm not going to have time to read every verse in these sermons. And so if you're familiar with the material, that's going to help you out quite a bit as you come in on Sunday morning. But here we go. We're going to go back to the beginning. 
And we're going to see the glory, first of all, of the covenant-keeping God. We find the Israelites in Egypt. Joseph is no longer alive. And the children of Israel are no longer 70. Look at verse number 6 and 7. The reason for that is this. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was what? Was filled with them. Now, that, that little verse right there, these key words, shows that God is helping Israel keep the command and the covenant he made with them. What am I talking about? Well, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Don't do that. I'll just read it for you. The creation mandate, and he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and um, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That was God's command. That was the creation mandate. Fruitful, multiply, fill. Look back. Fruitful, multiply, fill. You see the connection there? But it, it goes on a little bit further. We can go uh, to when the flood happened. Uh, the, the remnant got all the way down to eight people. And when Moses, Noah came off the ark, God told him, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then, of course, we know the Tower of Babel, that, that incident. And right after the Tower of Babel, chapter 11 of Genesis, you get to chapter number 12. Chapter number 12, there's this guy named Abram that God called out of Ur. And God made several covenants with him. Uh, or the, his covenant actually is, is given in several different places. And in chapter 17, verse number 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and the kings shall come from them. Notice what God did. God gave a creation mandate, and then he told Abraham, I am going to make you to be able to do that. And that's the kind of God that we serve. The God that we serve not only commands us to do things, he also empowers us to do the things that he commands. Isn't that wonderful? He tells us to obey him. But he doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us the Holy Spirit, the other comforter. He tells us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Well, how do you grow in the fruit of the Spirit? Yes, you work, but the power comes from the Holy Spirit who resides in you. It's, it's Christ in you helps you to fill that command. Isn't that wonderful? And so what we find is this mandate to fill the earth is being that, that covenant mandate is being fulfilled by God himself as he makes the children of Israel fruitful and multiply. But the problem is, we find in this life, that even if we're faithful to God, God's faithful will suffer. Look at verse number 8. In verse number 8, we are introduced to Pharaoh, who is the first major antichrist. Verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. I'm not going to go into the Hyksos and all the, that sort of stuff. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And so what did Pharaoh do? You, you've read the verses. You know the story. He oppressed them severely, the Bible says. And with, um, he kept stepping up persecution. First he made them slaves, then he made them uh, you know, doing the bricks and then the straw and, and you, on and on and on. 
And with each crack of the whip, Pharaoh was striking another blow against the God of Israel because ultimately, and listen, this is the important thing to understand, ultimately, even though it's a physical manifestation, this is a spiritual conflict. Pharaoh was fighting against God, and he probably didn't even know it. He is a picture of man in rebellion to God. He, he resented God's people. The world always resents God's people, don't they? Secondly, he rejected God's promises. God promised to make them a great nation. Pharaoh didn't want that. He says it right there. I don't want that. They, they'll overpower us. And then third, he resisted God's plan. And what was God's plan? God's plan was to move them back into Canaan. God said that when the, the iniquity of all the people in this land has, has come to fruition, I'm going to move you back in. And Pharaoh was against that. He did not want that at all. In, in essence, what Pharaoh was doing, he was claiming sovereignty over Israel. He was um, claiming sovereignty by holding them in slavery. In effect, in effect, he was claiming to be the Lord of Israel. He's claiming to be the Lord of Israel. And in so doing, he now is a tool of Satan. Right? That's, that's, that's the, the truth. There, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse has a book on spiritual warfare, and he called Egypt the greatest symbol of Satan's enmity against the children of Israel. He went on to say, the devil was in Egypt. The devil was ruling Egypt. Behind Pharaoh, there was Satan. And behind everyone who opposes God's people is Satan. It's a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rules of uh, darkness and high places and all of those verses, right? So there's, it's a spiritual battle going on. However, even though they were God's promised people, think about this. What, what if they'd been uh, listening to the latest prosperity gospel guy? You know, your best life now. Were they having their best life now? Were they, but were they under God's blessing? They, that's verses 6 and 7. Fruitful, multiplied, filled. They're under God's blessing, but they're in slavery. You can be blessed and you can be persecuted all at the same time. But they had prosperity in, in their persecution. I'll not describe the cruelty Egypt showed the slaves. I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks looking at that. But su suffice it to say, Egyptian slavery was cruel. The oppression of the Israelites raises an important question. And it's a question that God's people have been asking all through history, and they always raise in the midst of suffering, why? Why? We always ask the, the question, why, don't we? Why suffering? Well, God has many reasons for his people to suffer hardship. The most obvious one is to help them grow. Look at verse number 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now let me ask you a question. Does this remind you of anywhere else in Scripture? Does it remind you of the book of Acts? When the religious leaders in Jerusalem began persecuting the Christians, 
The Bible says that they were spread, and what happened? The word of God, the gospel spread throughout. It's happened all through history. God's people are persecuted. They flee the persecution, and with that fleeing of persecution comes the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No human government can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, know, we all know the statistics that before the, um, the um, oh, now I forgot the name of it, uh, the, 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 the communist crackdown in China, and I'll think of the name of it in about 10 minutes, and um, um, there were not that many Christians. There were maybe about 5 million Christians, and they estimate now there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States of America. That's, that's how it spreads. Human governments, whenever there's persecution, whenever there's suffering, the gospel spreads. Secondly, persecution preserve, preserve their unique identity. They, had they not been persecuted, they would have eventually assimilated into Egyptian culture. Right? They would have become Egyptian. Without suffering, we would become just like the world too. There was this new pharaoh who came on the scene. He was, he was, he was kind of like a, one commentator said, the original rebel without a clue. Um, the more he made God's people suffer, the more God triumphed. Charles Spurgeon said this, Pharaoh, though he knew it not, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church to take up their separate place in the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. Wasn't that great? That's true. When you suffer, what it does, it weans you off of this world. And it causes you to long for the world to come. This, this teaches us an important lesson about our own spiritual pilgrimage. And that is that suffering helps us to look for our Savior. <coughs> if, we, if we never have any trouble along the journey, we would never have any reason to long for heaven. Am I right? Now we, for our part, we feel bad when we long for heaven only when we suffer. But I would say that all of us are that way. When life is good, we don't long for heaven as much as we do when life is tough. Like the Israelites, we need the house of bondage to help drive us to the promised land. Another commentator wrote, It's hard enough for us to leave aside the treasures of this world, even though we suffer in it. How much harder is it for us to desire the new heavens and new earth when our lives here are comfortable? There are many reasons why God allowed his people to be persecuted at the hands of the Egyptians, but the point is that God always has a purpose for suffering for his people, and his purpose, and this is important, his purpose is always redemptive. It's always redemptive. Remember the psalmist, before I was afflicted, what? I went astray. Remember those when the psalmist talked about that? So it's also the pattern of the Christian life. 1 Peter 2.21 says, for this to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in the steps. We might suffer hatred and persecution, Christians often do, yet suffering produces spiritual growth. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces 
hope. That's Romans uh, 5, 3 and 4. Now go back to Pharaoh for just a minute. Slavery wasn't working for the poor guy. So in verse number 16, Pharaoh issued a death warrant and he became the enemy of life. This directly, directly counters the creation mandate, which is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? He also opposed God's special plan for sending a Savior by trying to prevent the Savior from ever becoming a man. Pharaoh became an antichrist. Pharaoh's attempt to exterminate the sons of Israel uh, anticipated all the antichrists of history, didn't he? Whatever the reign of terror is or whatever the culture of death, Satan is trying, listen, Satan is trying to destroy the work of God. The slogans change, but sin remains the same, whether it's Adolf Hitler and his final solution for eliminating the Jews, or communist China and its one-family, one-child policy, or here in the West, if it's pro-choice movement, which, by the way, has now been rolled into the environmental movement. It is environmentally wrong for people to have children because children use up resources. That's where it's going now. So whatever it is, any, that opposition to life is satanically driven. Bottom line. Bottom line. There's also an analogy here to the life of the soul. Pharaoh had two strategies. What were they? The first strategy was slavery. Right? The second strategy was death. And these are the same weapons Satan uses when he tries to destroy a, a human being. First, Sin leads to slavery. Remember what Jesus said in John 8.34? He said this, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Then once we are enslaved, Romans 6.23 says that sin leads to death, for the wages of sin is death. And so what we need is exactly what the Israelites needed. He, they needed a Savior to rescue them, to deliver them from slavery, and rescue them from death by destroying the enemy. Just as God provided a Savior for Israel, who was Moses, right? So he has provided a Savior for us in Jesus Christ, where once there was only bondage and death, now Jesus Christ brings liberty and life. Wonderful, wonderful truths, isn't it? Next, let's uh, look at chapter number 2. And uh, verse number one, we see God's providence in the birth of a Savior. Chapter number two begins a, with a glimmer of hope. Now a man from the house of Levi went out and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The early life of Moses is one of the most Powerful illustrations of God's overruling providence in the whole Bible. God is so powerful that no man can thwart his plans. As a matter of fact, God is so powerful that he uses man's own provision and plans to defeat himself. Doesn't he? 
The Nile was supposed to be a place of death for the Hebrew boys. When, when these two faithful uh, midwives did not refuse to uh, kill the Hebrew baby boys, what did Pharaoh tell his people? I think it was in verse about 9 or so. He said, throw every Hebrew baby boy in the Nile. The Nile was supposed to be a place of death, but the Nile became a place of life for Moses. The Nile was foiled of its prey. The great God of Egypt was defeated by an ark. Even the royal house was subordinated to God's overruling providence. The same royal house that decreed the death was made an instrument of life when Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe in verse number 5. And when the baby's mother, because the... the, um, when the baby's mother became the nurse and the baby came under the powerful and royal protection that no one could challenge, she had a Hebrew baby boy in her house, this Hebrew woman, and no one could touch that baby because it was now under the command of Pharaoh in Pharaoh's household because of Pharaoh's daughter. Isn't that amazing? The providence of God, the overruling providence of God. And finally, God's overruling providence is seen in the name that the daughter chose to give Moses. Verse number 2 says this, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, not verse number 2, this is verse number 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now the word Moses, Moshe, Sounds like the Hebrew word to draw out. And unwittingly, Pharaoh's daughter gave the child a name that hinted at his destiny because just as Moses himself was drawn out of the water, later he would draw God's people out of Egypt. Man, the Bible's full of just a bunch of coincidences, isn't it? Evolution's a wonderful thing. How accidentally all these things happen. But what do we do? We tend to put our hope in government action. We put our hope in politicians. We put our hope in uh, the rich and the powerful. We put our hope in the famous instead of putting our hope in God. And when things don't seem to go our way, we think, oh man, okay, Lord, you need to raise somebody famous up. You need to raise somebody powerful up or whatever else we're thinking. No, no, no. God overrules all of those things just like that. That's the kind of God that we serve. We also learn from, uh, from um, Exodus that salvation belongs to our God. From Moses' early life, we learn that salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Pharaoh was crushed because God toppled him. Think about the different ways that God was at work. God was at work in the birth of a Savior. He formed the child in his mother's womb and safely delivered him into the world. Moses' birth was a reminder of God's creative power. He was at work in the baby's basket. Have you ever thought about this? At one moment in history, God's entire plan 
for triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile in a little papyrus boat. Right? His mother made it as safe as she could, but of course, ultimately, it was God who protected that precious cargo of redemption. God, the Bible calls attention to God's saving work by calling the, the basket, you know what it literally was in Hebrew? An ark. The word is ark. And the only other time that that word is used is in the narrative about Noah and the ark. That's Genesis 6-9. through 9. This is a hint that God saved Moses in much the same way that he saved Noah. Both Noah and Moses passed through the waters of death by riding in an ark, the, the, the vessel of salvation. And you go all the way back to the New Testament or forward to the New Testament, and Peter tells us that we too went through the ark, through the waters of death with Jesus Christ, and Jesus was our ark. They were baptized, as it were, with the same water in which others perished. God was also at work in the life of Pharaoh's daughter. In the providence of God, she went down to the river at just the right time, at just the right place to discover Moses. The pity of this Egyptian woman was a reminder that the Exodus was not just for the Jews. Ultimately, it was for salvation of the whole world, including the Egyptians. We find later on that when the, when the Israelites finally made their Exodus, many other people went with them, including many Egyptians, the Bible says. And so this salvation was only for Jews, it was also for Egyptians, and it's for the whole world. God was working through Moses' mother. We can only imagine the joy that Jochebed felt when she received her child back into her, her, her own child back into her bosom. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the emotion that she felt taking her three-month-old child, putting him in a papyrus ark, out on the Nile with all the dangers in the Nile, and you all know the dangers, right? Wondering what is going to happen to my little boy, only to have the joy a little while later of her own daughter bringing her son back to her so that she could nurse her beloved son at, get this, at Pharaoh's expense. Don't you think that their standard of living probably went up a little bit, Right? And we learn in salvation that God satisfies the deepest longings of people he plans to save. Do you believe this? Do, do you believe that God is doing what is best, not only for his people generally, but for you personally? He's doing what's best in your trials and in your good times. Do you believe it? He is. God was at work in Moses' training. The Bible says that, that Moses did not grow up as a slave. He grew up as a son, safe and secure in Pharaoh's court. In Acts, in Stephen's famous sermon in Acts 7.22, he said that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This was the finest training the world had to offer. Historians uh, have noted that right at about this point and for hundreds of years, dignitaries from all over the world sent their children to Egypt to get trained. They called it nursery school. They were taking them to the nursery, which was Egypt. And Moses was trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, fine art, diplomacy. 
In other words, he was being trained for Pharaoh's overthrow. Wasn't he? He was. Right under Pharaoh's nose. And with this kind of background, it's no wonder that he came to be, according to Exodus 11, highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. God was preparing him to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses' story, by the way, prefigures a little child that was born in Bethlehem, a child worthy of greater honor than Moses, according to Hebrews 3.3. He was no ordinary child. He was the son of God incarnate. Like Moses, this little child was born under a death sentence, wasn't he? Herod the Great, the tyrant, as wicked as any of the pharaohs, was determined to put the newborn king to death. First he tried to do it secretly, then when he was foiled that way, he did it openly and ordered his soldiers to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem. But in salvation, God triumphs over evil, doesn't he? And so, like Moses, Jesus was delivered from death, and while the other babies were being crushed by the engines of the state, the child who was born to save us all escaped to Egypt. In all these events, God was working out his plan down to the last detail because salvation is his work from beginning to end. Then we see another thing in these first two chapters. We find that God taught Moses the danger of taking matters into his own hands. There's something about American culture that excites us when a celebrity or a politician or a sports athlete professes faith in, in Christ. I've never understood that, to be honest with you. To think, to, I think to, to a degree that people then place their trust in that person. Oh, man, you know, Christianity is now going to be popular. And back in the 90s in particular, that's when I was young in ministry. Hey, so-and-so celebrity is going to be at this big event. You want to go hear him? No, not really. I don't want to. I think people maybe even subconsciously think that this person will help the Lord out. They don't. The Lord doesn't need any help. Moses had everything the world had to offer. Uh, one of my friends says he had the world by the tail on a downhill pole. Right? He had everything the world had to offer. If there was ever a person who had everything going for him, it was Moses. And look at chapter 2, verse number 11. It tells us that one day Moses goes out to check on his people, and the verb is, looked on their burdens. That's an interesting word. I, I, man, I wish I had time to, to unpack that. But basically, that word is telling us that Moses, at that point, in chapter 2, verse number 11, literally turned his back on all the wealth and power and prestige of Egypt and identified himself with the slaves. He gave up position, pleasure, and prosperity, and by so doing, he rejected the three of the world's biggest temptations, right? Narcissism, hedonism, and materialism. Those are the biggest temptations that all of us face. And in Exodus chapter number 2, we see Moses identify himself 
with God's people and their suffering in order to bring them for salvation. Now, who does that remind you of? Jesus Christ has done the same thing. He left the glories of heaven, all the, all the glory and all the, the, the privilege and all of the exceeding wealth of heaven. And He entered into our own situation and he, he walked around among the slaves. We were slaves to sin in order to save us. In an earlier passage in Hebrews, it states that God has accomplished our salvation through the sufferings of Christ. Then it goes on to make a remarkable claim in chapter 2, verse number 11 of Hebrews. He says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Imagine that. Not ashamed to call us brothers. We are siblings of the Savior. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. Moses condescended to join his brothers, the Hebrews. But the supreme condescension is God joining himself to us in Jesus Christ that we might be members of his own family. And according to Hebrews eleven twenty six, we too are called to suffer for Christ's sake, aren't we? As we suffer for Christ's sake, we are also suffering with Christ. Enjoying what the Apostle Paul termed the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, Philippians 3.10. Such suffering is the inevitable result of being identified with Christ and with his people. So here's a question. Where is our ultimate allegiance? What is our primary identification? If we call ourselves Christians, then we are called to forsake the world to follow Christ. Becoming spiritually joined to his people. Of course, what do we know about the, uh, about the Moses story? Moses joined himself to his people too. But what happened to Moses? He did it in his own power. He took matters into his own hands. He killed the Egyptian, right? Next day, he sees a couple Hebrews arguing with one another. And... He found out the thing was known, and the Bible says that when he realized that, uh, verse number 15, look at verse number 15 for it, uh, with us. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses was trying to save God's people by his own works rather than trying to save God's people by God's grace. Don't we do that? How do we do that? Parents? Parents live in fear. Oh no, little Johnny, I don't like the path he's on. What do we do? We're tempted to use manipulative language, aren't we? Aren't we sometimes tempted to um, really clamp down? You can't go anywhere. We're gonna, if I box them up, they'll turn out right. We... Get rid of all their friends. We don't let them have this. We don't let them have that. And, and we really just clamp down on them. And what we're in essence doing is living in fear. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with some of these things. The manipulative language, obviously. But we need to be very careful how we raise our children. We need to raise them in the grace of God. We put boundaries around our children that are appropriate for each child, and each child is different, and they each need different boundaries, don't they? They do. 
They each, they're completely different children. And what's fair for one child is not going to be fair for another because one child, one size doesn't fit all. But we need to rely upon the grace of God in our child rearing. We need to realize that we can't save our children. We can't make our children turn out right. We can't make our children love God. Only God can do that, and that's by His grace. And Moses needed to learn that same lesson that minister can't be done in human power. It's got to be done in God's power and in God's grace. And so what happened? He ran out into the wilderness, right? He sat down by a well. Now, water wells um, had special significance in Genesis and Exodus. Abraham's servant found Rebekah, um, Isaac's wife, at a well in Genesis 24. Jacob found his wife Rachel at a well in Genesis 29. Now Moses finds a wife at the well in Exodus chapter number 2. Um, Acts uh, 7, 29, and 30 tells us that Moses spent 40 years, excuse me, 40 years in the wilderness preparing for ministry. 40 years in the wilderness preparing for ministry. There were so many lessons that he learned that were practical for public ministry. Moses became what he could have hardly have chosen to be, and that was a shepherd. Do you remember what we learned in Genesis? What did Egyptians think of shepherds? They looked down on him, right? Remember Joseph told his dad, tell him you are, you, are, um, you have cattle. Don't tell him you have flocks because shepherds are looked down upon in Egypt. But Moses went from the heights of Pharaoh's palace to being a shepherd. And that was completely appropriate because the language that is consistently used all the way through the Pentateuch is that Moses was shepherding the people through the wilderness when he finally did take them out. Moses became what he could hardly have chosen, a shepherd, but this prepared him for shepherding God's people through the wilderness. And, God, and by the way, that is why pastors, the word pastor is pastoral. It's a shepherding term. Pastors are shepherding God's people through the wilderness here as well, right? But, God uses our mistakes, even the kind of mistakes that send us into the wilderness for decades for his own glory. James Montgomery Boyce uh, has written, God can teach us through the failure of our own plans that he is capable of working for us and in us in spite of us. Only after we fail do we become aware that it is God and not ourselves who is working, right? I need to read that one more time. I don't think you got that. God can teach us through the failure of our own plans that he is capable of working for us and in us in spite of us. Only after we fail do we become aware that it is God and not ourselves who is working. It is God and not ourselves who is working. And then we see the last lesson from the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. Look at verse number 23 of chapter number 2. God hears prayer. Or we could call this scene, by the way, this kind of lays out like a movie or a book, and you could say, meanwhile, back in Egypt. Meanwhile, back in Egypt. Verse number 23, look at what it says. During those many days, how many days? 40 years. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, 
And the people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And look at what happened. God heard their groanings. Secondly, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Those words are euphemisms for God is going to act. Whenever you see the word look, God looked, it means that he's going to act. Matter of fact, David prayed to God, do not look upon my iniquity. In other words, don't act upon my iniquity. When God hears your prayer, it means that he's going to act upon your prayer. And when he knew their sufferings, that means that he was going to respond to their sufferings. And so they were praying and praying and praying. Forty years or more, they were praying for deliverance from slavery. And I'm sure it felt like to them, hey, God, are you listening? Do you hear me? Do you even know how to act, God? And he was. And he was preparing. And he was preparing a Savior. How many days? Well, from the birth of Moses until the burning bush, that was a total of 80 years. But verse 23 uses three words to describe bitterness of soul of the Israelites during their long servitude. They must have felt like they were afflicted by some divine curse. You ever felt like that? What is God punishing me for? He's not. If you are in Christ, you might be being corrected, but you're not being punished. One of the most dangerous things I hear when I'm counseling people and and counselors, y'all can tell us this. When somebody says, I did something 25 years ago, and this is how my life is today, and I feel like God is punishing me for that. You hear that all the time in counseling, don't you? You do. No. If you're in Christ, that sin has been forgiven from 25 years ago. However, God is causing suffering to come your way to help you become more like Christ. It's not punishment. It's redemptive. Just like it was with the children of Israel. These Israelites, I said at the beginning, they had one thing going for them, and that was God. They had nothing. They had no power. They had no property. They had no prestige. And some would say they didn't have a prayer. But in fact, that's all they had was prayer. Sooner or later, every believer ends up in a situation where the only thing that they can do is cry out to God. And here at the close of Exodus 2, Moses steps aside and God steps in. And he takes center stage and God is ready to deliver his people from their bondage. And he's going to act in history for their salvation to emphasize the power of the living God. And the Bible uses four active verbs. God hears, remembers, sees, and knows. God really is doing something. Not only did he have a plan for Moses, even in the wilderness, but his plan for Moses was part of a bigger plan that would result in the salvation of all of God's people. And you do not know what God is specifically doing in your life right now for his redemptive glory. But God is at work because, dear believer, if you are in Christ, it is all for 
His glory. Amen? Lord, I thank you for the, the truths that we learn from just these first two chapters in Exodus. It, it's so rich. Um, so many times I wish I could go back on my promise and preach many sermons on this passage. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us just to grasp just a tiny little bit of the riches of your glory, the greatness of your power, the purpose in our sufferings, and the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.